0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: This week on Science for the People, we're talking about how engineers look at risk, how we can have better conversations about resource development, and why water resources on the Canadian prairies aren't as consistent as we like to think. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Marian Kilgore, a mechanical engineer and your guest host for the week. So I'm here with Dr. Leanne Lefstrud, who is a researcher at the University of Alberta and teaches engineering and safety and risk management. Uh, Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Marian. It's a real pleasure to be on this program. So has the public conversation about risk changed over time? I have friends who work for oil and gas companies and they say, you know, we've always done it this way. Why do people have a problem with how we do things now?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. The conversation has changed. Uh, I'm working with folks in cognitive psychology, uh, Dr. Chris Westbury and Dr. Jeff Hollis, and also with folks in computer science, um, Eleni Stulia, Dr. Eleni Stulia. And what we've done is um, gathered up the uh, traditional media articles about uh, resource development and, um, as well as um, Facebook and uh, Twitter to understand how um, the public is talking about uh, different resource development questions, um, how they put words together uh, so we can look at how people create meaning by uh, the co-location or co-occurrence of words, um, the kind of value systems that they talk about resource development, and also the emotionality uh, with which they talk about resource development uh, more broadly. So when I talk about resource, it's not only oil and gas. We looked also at um, electricity, railroads, pipelines, um, i trying to remember what else, forestry, to then say how do we understand um, uh, what resource development looks like and how it's changed through time. And we got uh, almost uh, half a million uh, articles uh, in traditional media uh, about these resource conversations. And then uh, we, like I said, talked about or, or analyzed um, through uh, semantic co-occurrence, how words are used together, um, the meanings, um, the values, and then the emotionality. And uh, indeed, we can actually see that um, the conversation is, is shifted quite dramatically um, from Um, 1989 to present day um, about those resource conversations about, you know, how do we understand what is development and um, how we feel about it and um, what we value. And uh, we find that um, there's such a a real dramatic shift um, in around uh, 2009 with regards to the oil sands. So we no longer talked about it as being oil sands. We started uh, talking about it as tar sands, um, which was um, a, a purely descriptive term that was used in the 1970s and it um, was replaced by oil sands or, or bituminous sands, which is a um, more uh, technically correct term. But um, tar sands has popped up again in the conversation in 2009 and uh, this um on the duck deaths when uh, a bunch of migrating birds landed on a tailings pond and died. Um, and then tar sands uh, was has become used uh, much more frequently and it's uh, got a newly pejorative meaning so it's no longer just descriptive of you know tar something you put on your road or your roof it now has meanings associated with it like you know sticky black death so very um very value laden um very evocative um and also very emotional terms and what we find is that actually um the negative emotion associated with tar sands also spills over and and uh Creates negative, uh, increasingly negative words associated with oil sense, too. Um, so, like I said, we've it's the conversation is, is shifted. It's become, um, much more um, it's become much more critical. It's become much more polarized. Um, so, my my PhD research I did a network analysis. So, how are words using together? And you can look at what clusters of words are used together and uh, what was previously kind of a nicely distributed, you know, overall conversation. Uh, centered on oil or, or, um, generally, um, it's now become really polarized. It's, it's, you know, with one side claiming tar and one side claiming oil and, um, very, very polarized. So yes, the the conversation has changed dramatically in terms of, of the meanings, the values, the the emotion with which we talk about these things. Um, it's also changed in terms of who's talking to whom, uh, it's no longer kind of a general conversation. It's it's become very polarized conversation, and like I said, we can actually measure the conversation using um, like semantic uh, co-occurrence network techniques to then say how do how do we and who's so how are we talking about it? Who's talking about it, and who's more or less likely to talk to each other? So it's it's tr- changed dramatically, absolutely dramatically over the last thirty years, and and most specifically over the last seven years.
1: So in industry groups. Uh... Try to use the same sort of language that, say, environmental groups or public interest groups are using to talk about a resource like the oil sands. Um, does their attempt to use the same language work out, or does it sometimes backfire, or is it just not useful at all in, in moving the conversation into some place that
2: everybody can agree on? well it's i mean that's an, another very interesting question um because the language we use to 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 label things even um can um define uh where we are um on a position uh towards a, a resource for example um green energy has always been part of the conversation if you look at um how it's used uh, using google analytics a dirty oil popped up in 2007 um, and it's pretty much claimed by the critics, by the environmental groups against the oil sands. Um, that label has been pretty much rejected by oil companies, as you can imagine. Um, when they try to talk about resources as either conventional oil or unconventional oil, that doesn't really, it isn't picked up at all by by the public, by by the, the broader conversation about this resource. So they try to use their own technically correct language, um, but it's not picked up. So then, ethical oil, they replied to dirty oil with ethical oil and, and also re- replied to to conflict oil, and um, that wasn't picked up by the environmental groups, so there has been this real split. The industry doesn't want to talk about I mean they may talk about green energy, but they're certainly not going to use the dirty oil term, and environmental groups will use green energy but not talk but use conflict oil or ethical like conflict oil they won't use the ethical oil term so if we can look at kind of the overlap of of what terms people are 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 accept for a resource or or the terms that they can use to center a discussion uh green energy is is kind of the overlap in which um well, companies, environmental groups are, are both willing to talk about, about energy. And um, again, it's not about dirty oil, conflict oil, or ethical oil. It's not about oil anymore at all. It's about a broader conversation about energy. And it's, you know, what is green and how do we know, right? So um, the question becomes, you know, can uh, industry folks think about uh, be cognizant of the the even the labels or the language that they're using to talk about it, and use terms that are recognized by and considered acceptable to uh, the broader public or, or environmental groups more generally. And something like green energy is is a term that they can use. We can have a conversation about green energy, right? We can together determine, you know, um, what makes an energy green. How do we know? Um, you know, like broader energy policy kinds of discussions when we can talk about green energy. So absolutely environmental groups and industrial um, developers, policymakers, uh, organizations can have those conversations if they use terms that are, are, are recognized by and acceptable to, to both groups. So the answer is yes. But again, you've got to look at uh, what kind of terms are, are, are like position neutral i guess or or more kind of uh, aspirational terms that we can together create identification with and have a conversation about so terms matter right how we describe things matters um the kind of language we use matters so it's not only that the terms we use but then also the emotionality associated with it so uh, i'm working on some other work with some uh, other co-authors dr Achim Oberg and uh, Renata Meyer in um, in Austria and, and it's a follow-up to a paper we did on climate change and we're actually looking at how organizations talk about climate change online and the kinds of and, and we can again by the language that they use, we can determine, you know, what's their position towards climate change, how do they what's their position towards science. Uh we can look at kind of the URL and what kind of organization are they, what audience are they approaching, what's their geography? Are they fairly professional? Is it a large organization like NASA or is it a small organization like a an independent blogger, an individual? Um and what we find is that Again, using network analysis, where you can determine kind of hot links between websites and who's talking to whom and and who's talking back. Like how are they interacting between each other? So you can look at the the bi-directional um, connections or bi-directional hot links between um, these organizations online. And what we find is um, networks tend to be uh, organized by homophily, so like organizations are more likely to be associated with like organizations so but what we find is that the the similarity in the emotionality of the language that they use is a better predictor for these bidirectional links than any other measure of homophily better than like i said geography organizational type uh, political ideology position towards climate change um, a whole bunch of different variables and so you know, besides the language that we choose, um, marrying in terms of the labels or, or how we talk about certain resources, it's also the emotionality. So how positive or negative is our language? And then um, how um, arousing or how calming is the language? So um, what this this other research suggests is that um, emotionality, if we can have that um, emotional resonance um, with with others, then we're more likely to be able to more likely to engage with those others. So again, not just the the specific words or labels we choose, but then the language we use to talk about it and how emotional or positive, negative, arousing or or calming is it. And um, I think that's a good news story, right? Because what it says is, yeah, terms matter how we talk about things matters, but it's also the emotionality the the feeling uh, with, with, uh, which we we impart in our words that can create those connections with that transcend um, the the regular ways in which networks tend to be sorted and organized. So that's, I think, again, a very good news story.
1: So the the sort of stereotypical engineering response to say something like an environmental criticism is we, you know, well, that's not really a big deal. We recycle x liters of water per year and we're not taking that from the river so so this is awesome thumbs up for us so that um very numbers statistics based sort of response isn't going to be changing any minds or bringing
2: anyone over from you know the other side uh, uh no <laughs> and a lot of research has shown this about um about climate change about uh, conversations about science um i mean it, scientists or engineers will often talk about, well, people are, are, are scientifically illiterate. Um, uh, well, I would, you know, most people really aren't that interested in science. You know, I'm sorry to say, but you know, they'd rather, um, they're they're not as interested as, as we scientists or engineers would like them to be. And and not only that, they're not that interested in numbers or they find numbers to be scary. Um, so if you show them an equation, they turn right off a graph is slightly better. Um, Percentages are, are more accessible, but I mean, if you present it as a percentage versus a probability, I mean, it's, it's, it's more or less accessible. Um, people have a hard time understanding frequencies. Um, so a, a lot of the research has shown that um, if you give people numbers, they turn right off, right? Um, if you give them facts and figures, um, it can turn people off too. Uh, but, but scientists and engineers, if, if you're looking at how we can uh, communicate, it's, um, like I said, it's, it's how do we actually talk with emotion, uh, about what we're doing? Um, there's a lot of research too. The, um, uh, Edelberg Trust Barometer, uh, has done research in terms of who the public trusts. Uh, who are they more likely to trust? And, um, experts, um, and technical folks, uh, academics are at the top of the list. Um, and CEOs and, and regulators are at the bottom of the list and, and environmental groups are, are, are near the bottom of the list. So um, even by virtue of our training and our, and our expert knowledge uh, in science um, methods, uh, we become more trustworthy to people. So then the question is, so they're willing to listen to us, they're willing to trust us, which is great news. And um, the question is how can we then talk to them in a way that it captures their attention and makes our, our message more intuitively persuasive Um And some research that I'm doing with with another uh, group of folks, uh, with um, Heather Graves, she's in English Literature and Film Studies, and Nelson Phillips, who's in a business school, we're looking at actually um, how can you use images, like like pictures, right, in combination with words. And and a lot of research shows that. Pictures are much more likely to capture attention, uh, much more likely to make messages more intuitively understandable um, and allow people to to reconsider data or evidence in a, in a way that they wouldn't have before, such that they can engage more uh, in more in-depth reasoning and consider potentially uh, contradictory or, or information that where they have to kind of engage more deeply and, and make sense of something. So as engineers, what does this mean? Well, people trust us. They have faith in, in what we're doing. Um, and if we can use emotion and pictures in terms of how we talk to, to folks about what we're doing uh, can be much more, um, much more accessible and much more successful in terms of, of relaying some of those, those facts, some of those details um, than just giving a percentage or a statistic or a, a graph. So if we can uh, show images, if we can show, like I said, show the emotion, show how we're, we're, we're people just like them, then we're much more likely to be able to connect with folks. And I know engineers aren't comfortable with 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 emotion, right? We like to think, oh, we're we're objective, we're science based, we're fact based. But um, bottom line, again, emotion has shown that we've got kind of the logical, rational way of reasoning, but then we have uh, emotional reasoning, which is a is a parallel pathway. And in fact, um, a lot of psychology has shown that this emotional reasoning pathway is it actually governs all of our logical reasoning so in fact we do have biases in fact we do have emotion and to be able to recognize that and to to, um, acknowledge that is is both a a, better equips us in terms of how we do our job but it also better equips us in terms of how we talk to folks about things so i think that that's again it's we need to as engineers and, and technical science folks uh, need to be able to acknowledge that and then say, okay, how do we harness this in terms of the work that we do or, or how we communicate uh, with different stakeholder groups?
1: So when you look at, say, uh, the magazines, at the checkout counter at, uh, at the grocery store, they have a lot of stories, you know, emotional mm-hmm. type stories, stories about people. So is that one strategy that can be really effective in communicating with the public?
2: Absolutely. Uh, exactly. Absolutely. A story about people. Right? And, um, you know, not that we need to have Kim Kardashian talking about the oil sands or, or pipelines, but I mean, that's why um, the, the public is now much more interested in pipelines or much more interested in, in the oil sands than they were before because you've got, you know, someone like James Cameron going up and, and seeing the oil sands. You've got someone like uh, Mark Ruffalo um, on Capitol Hill opposing pipelines because it's just, it's people that they, in they, um, stories, narratives right? That they can, um, they, they can identify with and, and buy into and pay attention to. Um, and um, again, as technical folks, it's like, okay, now what kind of stories can we tell? And our data tell stories, right? Um, our, our landscapes tell stories, our, our industries tell stories. And if we can um, recognize that we are, um, we are the authors of our own story, um, then that can be very, very powerful. And, and just getting back to kind of the labels that uh, people have used to describe the oil sands, um, like I said green energy uh, was used you know as early, or like much much earlier than two thousand and four um, the the um, industry was silent right they didn 't uh, dirty oil popped up in two thousand and seven um, the industry didn 't respond uh, with with ethical oil until till two thousand and ten so uh, years later like as much as three years later of, of this idea of dirty oil. If we technical folks, engineering scientists, are not telling our story, if we're not controlling the narrative, then other people are. and it's not going to be our story, it's not going to be our narrative. It's going to be someone else's narrative. And that's really what's happened in a lot of these resource conversations is that others have have captured that narrative. They're able to to put people in the stories. They're able to have a protagonist and an antagonist and all those juicy things that we like to see um, is that captures our you know the personal interest story. Um, and again, as engineers, geoscientists, um, scientists more broadly, technical types, um, we have really avoided the personal. We've really avoided the the narrative of the story. Um, and again, it's how can we we tell those stories in a way that's engaging, in a way that's personal, in a way that's visual and emotional. And um, I mean, that's that can be a really valuable way of of having those those difficult conversations about energy policy com- or climate change, like conversations we're really not having now on a, on a substantive, um, scale, right? Like I said, it's, it tends to be very polarized and, um, you know, with, with, you know, each environmentalist talking in, to each other and, and, and industry folks talking to each other, but really not talking, um, between and across in a way that we need to have those conversations.
1: So, uh, when we talk about getting, getting emotion involved and getting images involved, I mean, that sounds a lot like marketing. Is that some, like, do we want the marketing departments involved in these conversations? <laughs> or, or should we be, I, I guess the alternate side is we should be focused more on making sure that the people out talking to the public are telling personal stories. But, you know, it, it, it has a feeling like marketing might get involved. Right.
2: I mean marketing. I mean that's uh, like a, a common criticism when I talk about my work. They're like, "Oh, you're just going to market, and it's about manipulating public opinion towards towards a certain resource." And I, I recognize that 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 can be a concern, absolutely. But bottom line is is that the science has to be solid, right? Policy has to be solid. The the, the technical uh, research has to be done. And like I said, as as engineers and scientists, we have um, an ethical commitment to um, protect the public and and hold the environment is is paramount. Like we have to. That's that's what we're doing here. What do we, it's 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 protecting the public and and the environment. So it's it's not about just you know talking with 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 sweeter words and and showing glossier pictures it's much more than 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 that it's how do you engage effectively with these different groups these different stakeholders who have very legitimate concerns and how do you understand their concerns how do you hear their concerns and on that basis it's not just about marketing not just about what you say it's about what what do what do companies do differently how do we develop our resources differently um what what does that look like um and uh, like I said, the stuff that I'm doing with with psychologists and computer scientists, it's it's the, the intent is how can we use those conversations to to kind of monitor what are emergent risks or, or the public beliefs are, are emergent risks, and then how can we use that to engage more effectively with these different stakeholder groups? And it means not just marketing, it's it's or the stories we tell. It's how do we actually do things differently? Um, you know, the the for example, tailings ponds have been ignored for decades. When I look at them, um, the first application to the uh, Energy Resources and Conservation Board in in 1969, mm-hmm. um, there was one paragraph on the tailings ponds. They were considered to be um, entirely unproblematic. Um, yeah, there was going to be a throughput uh, throughput rate, and the water be put back in the river, and it would all be fine. It would all be fine. And now we have these great big huge tailings ponds, um. And they're, it's difficult to separate the mature finds, uh, to find tailings from everything else, right? It's, it's technically, it's very difficult. Um, now tailings are a big deal, right? Um, we've been ignoring it for decades and then those, those ducks landed on, on Sinclair's uh, tailings pond and died in 2009. And it radically, it gave, um, a very, um, visual, a very emotional, um, um, picture of what is, what is the oil sense? Again, it's, it's sticky tar and death. Um, but, I mean, it doesn't mean that we need to talk about the tar sands, the the tailings ponds, all that differently by the words we choose. No, it means, my gosh, people are really worried about these tailings ponds. And yeah, we need to do something with them and we need to do something now. We can't just ignore them. We can't just talk about them differently or show different pictures. It's we need to uh, reclaim them. We need to um, do something with all this water, this this, uh, contaminated water um so it's not just a, a marketing ploy it's it's a broader conversation about what are the strategic priorities for resource development and then how do we address those and um you know up until like i said 2009 the tailings ponds weren't a priority i mean they were don't get get me wrong like millions of dollars were spent on you know how do we we separate and reclaim these tailings but it wasn't it wasn't the number one priority it was down the list and now resource companies are saying okay now these are these issues are important issues, right? We, we need to care about um, greenhouse gas emissions. We need to care about water. We need to care about reclamation. Um, these are now our priority in a way that they weren't before, which is, is not just a marketing exercise. It's it's a broader conversation, like I said, about strategic priorities and what does development look like and what do companies have to do differently on that basis.
1: So when people are having a conversation with friends uh, and you know they're coming at this from very different points of view, they've heard stories from different sides. Do you have any advice for how they can have a useful and productive conversation (laughs) that doesn't get into the, well, you just don't know what you're talking about or you're just a shill for, you know, the
2: oil companies or
1: whatever.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's again, that's a very difficult, but important question, right? And I have uh, a whole range of fantastic and wonderful and and cool friends and they are everything from, car-free environmentalists whose whole front yard is planted with potatoes um to academic types to um uh to like just cool neighbors to um you know many of my grad class are, are working for like exxon or enbridge or um with companies right um who are uh working very actively in the resource sector and um I've been asked time and time again uh, from my friends from these different perspectives, whose side are you on? And I found, um, originally I found that question very, very perplexing. It was very confusing to me, like sides, right? Like, do I have to pick sides? <laughs> I didn't know I had to pick sides. You're all my friends. And I'd like to think that we have enough in common um, that I don't have to pick sides, but um, it bothered me. And the reason why it bothers me is because there aren't sides. I mean, there's, like I said, the media likes to have you know sort of, you know, he said, she said, or the protagonist and the and the um, the antagonist in the story. But this this polarization of the debate has really been uh, particularly unhelpful. I'm a I'm a mother. I have lovely children, and I want them to grow up in a world that's better than the world that I had. And I had a, a pretty good life. I've had a fantastic life. I grew up on a farm. I had a pony. You know, not that my children have ponies. So our yard isn't big enough. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is that. I want my children to be and the work that I do is to, to leave the world as good or better than what I found it. And I mean, when you look at the Brundtland commission in terms of how they define sustainability, that's kind of the core of the definition um, uh, is to leave the world uh, as good or better than you found it. And um, when I talk to my, my friends across the spectrum of environmental and, and political uh, positions, I mean, that's, it's an, it's a goal, an aspirational goal to which we all subscribe, right? of course we want our children to have a better world, to have the opportunities to, to be healthy, to be happy, to have a longer um, lifespan than what we've had. And to have those difficult conversations, uh, I think is really the starting point is to say, okay, now what do we have in common here? What do we, what do we share in terms of, of our goals? And, um, like I said, I'm, um, I do a lot of research on climate change. My dad is a climate change skeptic, right? So it's like, okay, now how can we um, have those conversations even about climate change? And it's about, yeah. Okay. What is, what does the world look like for my children, for his grandchildren, um, for our grandchildren's grandchildren? Um, And then on that basis, you know, how can we start to understand what our choices are? Right. Um, How can we consider what, uh, what, what we could or should be doing. How do we have those difficult conversations? Cause I, I don't think we're having them right now. It tends to be more, you know, my facts against your facts or, or, you know, this superiority or inferiority complex. And I think that's, that's like I said, it's particularly unhelpful. It's like, what do we share? What goals and aspirations? And then um, how can we have those difficult conversations about what, what energy, what needs? What do we need to? What, what does our energy mix look like, right? What does? How do we address issues of climate change, um, and and uh, rising sea levels? I mean, that's scary stuff, right? And um, it's a, those are very, very important conversations. And again, if we start with these aspirational goals, and I think that that's really a way of saying, okay, we're all on the same side here, right? This um, this bifurcation, this polarization of discussion, is is completely unhelpful and and, and false. Uh, and it's, it's uh, dangerously false. So um, we've got to, again, talk about what do we share? Like, what do we we what do we want? And then how do we get there? So rather than um, uh, sort of positional um, dead uh, deadlock, uh, how can we move beyond that? So it's kind of interest-based negotiation as opposed to position-based negotiation.
1: All right, thanks. If you'd like to learn more about Leanne Lefsred or her work, we have links you can follow at scienceforthepeople.ca. I'm Marian Kilgore with Science for the People, and after the break, we'll be back with Dr. David Sachin to discuss water resources on the Canadian prairies.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show.
1: This is Science for the People. I'm Marian Kilgore. I'm here with Dr. David Souchin, a senior researcher at the Prairie Adaptation Research Collaborative at the University of Regina. Thanks for joining me. You bet, Marian. A lot of your research has looked at precipitation and water levels on the Canadian prairies. Could you give us a bit of an overview of what you've found over the years doing this work?
3: Sure. Well, the, the approach that we take to studying water levels is to look at the history of the last thousand years. The, the conventional way of working with, with water is to use measurements of water levels. So there's a lot of gauge data available. And that's the traditional scientific and engineering approach is to use the best available source, which is measured data. However, these gauge records typically are decades long, at most about 100 years. And we consider that to be a fairly small window on the variability of these systems. And so we've been looking at the water levels over the last thousand years to give us an indication of what the full range of variability is in these hydrological systems.
1: So how would you, how do you even go about looking at water level records that far in the past?
3: There's various sources. I mean, there are archival records, the Hudson Bay Company, for example, and Fort Edmonton, there were direct observations of, of water levels. So the historical approach is one. Uh, water levels can all also be inferred from the historical levels of, of lakes. And uh, the, the lake record is preserved in the lake sediments that accumulate in the bottom of the lake and all the different constituents of of the lake sediment, biological and geological, which are sensitive to the level and salinity of the lake, and that's one approach. But the approach that we've taken is to collect old wood because trees are part of the hydrological cycle. They take water from the soil. They transpire water. Water evaporates from trees. And so there is a statistical relationship. There's a a mathematical relationship between the amount of water which is available for tree growth, and how much trees grow. And that relationship was particularly strong in the, in the driest environments. Because on the Canadian prairies, well, throughout the southern prairies, there are no trees because there isn't enough water. But where there is, like in the island forests or in the river valleys or on the margins of the, of the grassland, where there is sufficient water, um, the trees have soil. They have good soil, they have light, they have carbon dioxide, uh, and they have heat in the summertime, but the limiting factor is moisture. So what really controls the amount of wood that's added by trees is how much water is available in these dry climates.
1: So when you look back at a thousand years worth of data on water levels on the prairies, uh, What do you see? Are there there broad trends over time, or has it been fairly consistent?
3: I wouldn't describe them as broad trends. I would describe it more in terms of cycles. What we find is we find a lot of cycles of of different frequencies. So we find a, a short cycle where there are cycles of wet and dry years every four to eight years. And then we find a lower frequency, a longer cycle that's on the order of 30 years. Uh, When you combine a period of 30 years of drier conditions and 30 years of wetter conditions, you have a full 60-year cycle. And so that 60-year cycle turns out is fairly important, but it's not really evident in the the measured water level records because very few records exceed 60 years and even those that do you only see a single cycle so the real advantage of taking this paleo or or long-term perspective is to capture the lower frequency in the variability of our climate and our water supply
1: so you mentioned that the the measured records are generally not longer than 60 years to begin with so having this long-term picture um how does how can that help make you know basically people making decisions does it should it be affecting uh policy and regulators
3: it should be and in fact uh, because we've been doing doing this for so long for more than 25 years eventually uh your science gets noticed and so In recent years, we've been working more so with decision makers in government and industry than we have with other scientists because we've now collected about 8,000 pieces of old wood from Alberta, Saskatchewan, and and adjacent states and provinces and territories. And so we've amassed a fairly large archive of old wood, enabling us to reconstruct water levels for 1,000 years in the case of the Saskatchewan River Basin. And so we've we've spent more time processing that data and packaging that data so that it provides a information that's useful for decision making. And the reason that I think that these government agencies and some private corporations, private utilities find this useful is because it tells them more about the variability than the water supply than they previously knew, previously knew because, because their understanding of the water supply has up to this point been based primarily on these shorter gauge records. And so if you're looking at a, a short record, you can detect what you think is either increasing or decreasing water supply. When in fact, what you're looking at is just one half of a longer cycle, if you know what I mean. If a cycle, if a full cycle is 60 years and you've only got 30 years of data, you might be on the rising or the falling limb of that cycle. And so it's not uncommon to see studies where they've reached the wrong conclusion because they've based their understanding of water supply based on a relatively short record that falls within one of these full cycles.
1: So, where are we where are we on this a cycle right now? Cuz, you know, we've had a few years the past few years in Alberta at least weren't particularly great for for farmers, but is that just a short-term trend or are things getting drier or wetter? (laughs) What's going
3: on here? That's a good question, the question we get very often. (laughs) And you know, once you know about these cycles, you see them all the time. And the cycle that, that most people know about that shorter cycle, the four to eight years, is La Nina, El Nino. And it's quite well documented now that when there's an El Nino that is warm water along the equator in the Pacific Ocean that we tend to get warmer and drier weather on the prairies. And conversely, if there's a La Nina colder water off the coast of South America, then we tend to get cooler and wetter conditions on the, on the Canadian prairies. And, uh, that, that what's called tele, it's called a teleconnection because it's a connection between the ocean and where we live, but it's over a long distance. So it's called a A teleconnection like a telephone. Mm -hmm. That teleconnection with uh, El Nino, La Nina is very well documented, such that there's actually companies that will provide seasonal weather forecasts (laughs) for, for a price. For a price, they'll give farmers or a utility or a municipality a weather forecast for next winter or for next spring. And it's based primarily on the status of El Nino and La Nina. Now, the longer cycle is also driven by sea surface temperatures. But it's in the North Pacific Ocean where we get most of our water. Because the source of water on the prairies is the Pacific Ocean, to a lesser extent the Gulf of Mexico and the Arctic, but primarily the Pacific Ocean. And so these air masses that form over the Pacific, they travel over Western North America. They leave most of their precipitation in the mountains in the Rocky Mountains in our case, and then the snow melts. And so most people on the prairies get their water from the north and south Saskatchewan rivers and, to a lesser extent, the Athabasca. Just about everybody in Alberta and most of the people in Saskatchewan get their water from the north and south Saskatchewan River, which is snowmelt coming out of the Rocky Mountains, and the amount of snow and the amount of rain is determined by the temperature of the Pacific Ocean. The temperature along the equator tends to shift every four to eight years. There's a longer cycle in the northern Pacific where temperatures tend to shift about every 20 or 30 years. Scientists call that the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, and it explains the longer cycle in the climate of the Canadian Plains.
1: So then in the case of the Colorado River, when they decided how much water everybody could withdraw, it's more than is currently sort of should be taken out of the river.
3: Yeah, and, and the, the, the states and the cities along the river are entitled to much more water than actually is available from the river with consequences that, for example, the, the river is nearly dry by the time it gets to Mexico. And uh, that story is told in numerous books and articles about how the Colorado River is really over-allocated because the um, the agreement was struck during a wet period. That's not unlike the story in Alberta, actually, because um, when we look at our tree record, there are times that are much, much drier than the 20th century in Alberta. Now, I hate to say that because, I mean... My family, on both sides of my family, were homesteaders in Alberta. And in fact, my mother's family had to leave southern Alberta during the, the dirty 30s. So there had been really bad droughts that affected people, including my family. But those droughts aren't nearly as long or severe as droughts we see before Europeans came to Western Canada. There was a drought that happened in the 1850s, just before Alberta was settled for ranching. And the a guy, an explorer named John Palliser, came through and said, Don't bring Europeans to Western Canada. He said it'll be forever comparatively useless. And he advised government not to settle and of course they ignored the scientific advice. But um that, that drought of the eighteen fifties is very clear in our tree rings. And it's it's quite a bit worse than the nineteen thirties.
1: If there are worse yeah. droughts than what we saw in the dirty 30s, what would a major drought have been in the past?
3: <laughs> well, we spent a lot of time trying to, exp- try- trying to um, express what those droughts were like in modern terms. Now, the 30s were bad, for sure, partly because it was the first bad, long drought that we were exposed to as Europeans. And so, We discovered we had been farming inappropriately, and we would farmed places like eastern Alberta that shouldn't have been farmed. So for various social and, and environmental reasons, the 30s were bad. But climatologically, they weren't as bad as previous droughts. So what we've done is we've taken some of these long, severe droughts of previous centuries, and we've tried to put them in terms that people today can relate to. For example, we'll take, say, the 26-year drought between 17, 1790 and 1806, and we'll convert each of those years into an equivalent year from the 20th century. And so that, that equivalent, that, that drought might look like the 1930s and the 1980s and 2001 and 2002, back to back to back. So I'm just I'm just citing some recent droughts that were especially bad, like 1984, 1961, 1988, 2001 were really bad. But in between, in between there were a bunch of wet years. Now, we're going to take those dry years of the recent past and put them back to back to back to back for 26 years or 27 years. And that's what these droughts looked like a few hundred years ago. So people can try to imagine if they were around and they were farming or living in Alberta in 2001 or 1988, try to imagine if that kind of drought was to reoccur for many, many consecutive years.
1: That's a lot of summers with no water.
3: Mm-hmm, yeah. And, you know, uh, w- we believe the tree rings, because the tree rings pick up the droughts of the 30s and 61 and 88, 2000, 2001. They were there. But also there is historical evidence of... The pre-settlement droughts, because there were native people, and they have an oral history, and there were explorers. mentioned John Palliser, but also Fort Edmonton was constructed in 1794. The next year, they said they couldn't move the furs because there was no water in the river. That's a direct quote from Hudson Bay Company. They had to stockpile the furs because there was no water in the river. And we're talking about The North Saskatchewan River. Well, as it turns out, when we look at the trees, we find a very narrow tree ring the same year. So the trees and the Hudson Bay Company are telling us the same story about the year 1795.
1: So, who is interested in the work that you've been doing?
3: Well, in recent years uh, and currently, we've been our work, our research has been funded by um, the federal government, of course, because and circ and that's their business but also we've received funding from Epcor okay. which yeah which manages the water supply for the city of Edmonton and about 50 other cities including Regina now where i live and uh, we received funding from the city of Calgary because they manage their own water supply We um, had a project sponsored by the Canadian Oil Sands Innovation Alliance because we looked at the Athabasca River. So we're talking private sector and municipalities that have an interest in our work because it gives them a different perspective, gives them a longer term view of how reliable the water supply is in these river basins.
1: Yeah, well, it's good to hear that they're looking to get perspectives, I guess, that they didn't have earlier on or wouldn't have had, you know, in the past century with the data that they were measuring directly.
3: Yeah, and we have to work with them because this is not a data source that they're used to. A lot of these people are trained as engineers, um, and uh, they weren't trained to use tree ring data, um, but they're willing to work with us and work through how we generate the information and what the limit- where the limitations lie in the type of data we produce. Because after all, it is a proxy. A tree ring doesn't record how much water is in the river. It's just that the tree and the river were responding in the same way to precipitation. So it's a proxy and it's not an exact indication of how much water was there, but it's a relative indication of wet and dry years and the sequence of wet and dry years. So um and um and so we we've found it quite at least I found it quite satisfying working with these uh private utilities and, and municipalities and uh actually observing them realize that this is a, a reliable and reasonable data source and and they think of applications that don't occur to us because we know the tree rings and we know hydrology, but we don't know the operation of their utility or the operation of their municipality. And uh, so they can think of applications for our work that that wouldn't occur to us.
1: Given the uncertainties inherent in predicting, you know, climate off into the future, what would you suggest that industry and regulators and municipalities should be doing to basically mitigate the risk there of the variability in water supply?
3: (laughs) Yeah, another great question. And our Triving lab, our research program is based at the Prairie Adaptation Research Collaborative, where our mandate is to inform adaptation planning on the prairies, so we've given a lot of thought to that to that question. But I'm gonna I'm gonna step back uh, from that just a little bit because the the uncertainty is large. And what's ironic is the more we study the climate system and the more models that are run, the amount of uncertainty doesn't seem to be declining. In fact, it's almost increasing. Because every time a model is run, it produces a different future climate. Now, there's there's going to be some convergence. There are, there are going to be climate projections that the cluster on a certain future. But these climate models are so incredibly complex that each time they're run, they produce a different trajectory. And there's been a lot of research recently on what is really causing, what are the causes of the uncertainty. And there's three basic reasons why, well, we can't possibly predict the future, but there are three basic reasons why there's a lot of uncertainty. One is we don't know what people are going to do in terms of their behavior and their policies. We don't know how much more greenhouse gases we're going to produce. That's one source. Another source is there's a lot of models out there, and each model is a little bit different. So there are differences between models. But it turns out the largest source of uncertainty is just the natural internal climate variability. And that's the information that we get from tree rings. It shows us how the climate has varied over the last thousand years. And it's that natural variability that the models have difficulty simulating um, or simulate differently between different models. So you can take exactly the same model, take a very good model that's able to replicate the climate of our part of the world, an excellent numerical, mechanistic, uh, physically based model and run it many times and each time you get a different future climate. Well, the reason is is because just the natural internal variability of the complex climate system. So that that's that's how we actually know that a large part of the uncertainty is due to natural variability is because scientists have run the same model over and over again and they get a different climate each time. So, um, yeah. So there's a lots, of, lots of uncertainty. What do we advise? Well, I guess the most cautious and judicious approach is just to be uh, sure that you have the capacity to deal with a range of future climate conditions. Because one of the most certain projections is that the range of variability is getting greater. So there's good scientific evidence that if you warm up the oceans and warm up the atmosphere, that weather events should be more intense, that rainfall should be heavier. And just the variability from year to year and decade to decade could be increasing as a result of a warming climate.
1: So it sounds like there's sort of the dual challenge of ensuring that, you know, infrastructure and things like erosion control can handle heavy rainstorms in a wet year, as well as longer drier years as well
3: right right and you know i mentioned that we've been working with municipalities and epcor and and so on but most of our research has actually been with the farming community um and, and they are prepared in fact they've always been prepared they've been adapting ever since they got here they wouldn't still be here if they weren't adaptable but uh, I just had a conversation this morning with a, a farmer who says that he's working with plant breeders to come up with varieties of wheat, one variety that can withstand unusually wet conditions, and another variety that can withstand unusually dry conditions. Now, the reason he was talking to me is he wanted to know, are we able to determine if a decade's going to be wet or dry? Mm-hmm. Because they, they would have to switch from one variety to the other. But at least they're thinking about it, at least they're thinking about coming up with practices and technologies that are resilient on the one hand with excess moisture and a deficit of water on the other. And that's the kind of thinking that that we need. The first thing you need to do is you have to shed this idea that the environment is static. And believe it or not, until recently, there there were still technologies and management practices and engineering solutions that assumed that the environment didn't change within our lifetime.
1: It's an assumption that engineers <laughs> like to make. I'm familiar with it.
3: <laughs> you know, and it, it for good reason because it really simplifies the problem.
1: Oh yeah, for sure.
3: You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of engineering solutions that only work if you assume a static environment. Now if you eliminate the assumption of stationarity, it means that they have to come up with a different set of solutions, which they're in the process of doing. But you know, I've I've been working with engineering companies who told me as recently as ten years ago that they assume that things are static. But now they're no longer talking that way. And I like to think that that um, our work had and the work of colleagues who do similar types of research had something to do with it. We've been able to demonstrate that that um, stationary does not exist. Certainly as a result of global warming, but also because it never has existed. That the paleoclimate record shows that our our climate can cycle and shift within human at a human time scale or so, even an engineering time scale yep. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah so engineers uh, you know will often talk about designing uh, you know a piece of infrastructure or a building for something like the one in 100 year storm are those sorts of numbers that we'd come up with in the past you know they're very regional there's charts that will tell you for this area the one in 100 year wind storm is X Um, are those? Do those need updating? Are those still valid?
3: Mm, for sure, and and they know that. And there are engineering associations and committees that are that are working on it. Like Engineers Canada has a, a very active uh, uh, climate change group, and um, they they realize that as a result of a warming climate, that heavy precipitation and stormwater runoff, in particular, will be more intense. But even in the absence of global warming or climate change, just the natural cycle suggests that there is a difference, a different probability between different cycles of the PDO. And just recently, a, a PhD student of mine and some of my colleagues, we published a paper in the Journal of the American Water Resource Association. We showed just that. And for Western Canada, the probability of a flood is very different between the two phases of the of the PDO. And similarly the probability of a drought is very different depending on whether you're in the warm phase of the cold phase of the PDO. So, and of course, standard engineering practice is is to come up with a single probability, exceedance probability, or return period uh, for the entire historical or instrumental record. Now they have to think in terms of coming up with two different exceedance probabilities depending on the the phase of the PDO or ENSO. And on top of that, you overlay the impact of warming climate. I feel sorry for them. It makes things much more complex. (laughs) I
1: know. I was just (laughs) sitting here thinking,
3: damn it, things did not get easier. No, I took engineering engineering at the U of A in the early 70s when life was much more simple.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what what research uh, or what actions do you think still need to happen on this topic?
3: Well, I kind of think that we're just scratching the surface. And maybe this is typical of all scientists, but it seems like the more research you do, the more questions you come up with. And- um, I think we, we really are just beginning to research the problem of what is the impact of a warming climate on these natural weather and climate forcings. And uh, that that's going to be a huge issue for Western Canada. And especially for, you know, in some industries, they're fairly flexible. Farming is one where they can, they can change their strategy from year to year, and they do. I mean, they they decide each year what... What to grow and what not to grow. So they have a, they're very, very sensitive to weather and climate, extremely, more so than any other human activity, but at least they have some flexi- flexibility. In other industries like mining and oil and gas, they tend to build these structures that take years to build and they won't be decommissioned for 50 or 100 years. So they'll be operating in a different climate. That's one reason why we've actually had a major oil and gas company express interest in using our tree data because. They're involved in the oil sands, where there still are plans, believe it or not, for, for a major expansion of the oil sands. Um, and if there is, they're going to be building uh, mines and, and in-situ drilling operations that won't come into play, that won't come into operation for many years and or several years, and will still be operating in 20 or 50 years. So they have to think in terms of which phase of the PDO are they going to be operating in and <clears throat> how much different will the climate be because of course processing of the oil sands takes a fair bit of water
1: yeah so th- so that well i mean at least they're thinking ahead <laughs>
3: Yeah, and I give them credit for that. And I was kind of overwhelmed when I got a call in my office from a big oil company in Calgary and said, we want to talk to you. Oh, that's cool. And they went went to Calgary and sat in their boardroom, and they said, we want to use your tree rings. And I said, well, good for you. And uh, I felt like retiring at that point. Like, <laughs> I've done it. I've done it. Call it
1: a high watermark. And
3: exactly. Walk away. <laughs> walk away. What else can I achieve? <laughs> yeah and it's fun working with these people it's great yeah well
1: and I mean that's that's the thing right because they don't want to go ahead and build all this infrastructure and then find out 25 years from now that they're only allowed to use half the water that they thought they could
3: Exactly, and the way they the terms they put it in is okay if we if we um overestimate the water supply, then all we've done is a bit of excess engineering. We have over engineered the project uh, thinking there's more water, but if we underestimate the water supply, if we're wrong in that direction, it's catastrophic. We have to shut down the mine, yeah right? and so and so they would rather. Uh, err on the side of of underestimating the water supply, which is why they're looking at some of these long droughts in the treaty record. The thing about these long pre-industrial droughts is they will reoccur. I mean, they only happened a couple of hundred years ago. Geologic time, that's nothing.
1: Yeah, so it's just a matter uh-huh. of time before we see one again.
3: They're going to happen again. I mean, that may not be in this century, it might be in the next century. But, but every century has had its long drought. 20th century was the 1930s. The 19th century was the 1850s. Um, and so every century has had a really long drought. The worst, and, but the difference is those long droughts occurred when the earth was cooler. Right. The most challenging scenario for Western Canada is going to be a long drought in a much warmer climate.
1: Right, because you'd be getting more water evaporating out of the soil just to start with.
3: That's right, from the soil and the rivers and the lakes. Hmm. And so it'd be like a double whammy. It'd be like one of these long droughts happening again, but under warmer conditions. Well. <laughs> sorry to bring you bad news but i mean there are there are we 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 give that information to 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 um the ag sector and to oil and gas and they think about you know they 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 have they have policy people and they have planning people who think about what would we actually do if we had a really long drought in a warmer climate
1: Mm -hmm. well thank you very much If you'd like to learn more about David Souchin or his work, we have links you can follow at scienceforthepeople.ca. That's all the time we have this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Science for the People. Science
0: for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anakin Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skepchick at skepchick.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.